Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily has some information to share about beavers on the move and the longest beaver dam in the world. I'm going to speak with Abraham Francis from the Mohawks of Aquasasne. Abe's going to talk to us about their Mohawk Nation's connection to the St. Lawrence River then and now. I've got some tips to share on how to stay warm when you're heading outside during these winter cold days, especially if you're going out on the ice where you're going to be doing a lot of holding still and ice fishing. That takes some extra planning. And I'm going to have some reflections on how to stay safe when you're snowmobiling. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Lily and get out there and have some fun in all this snow. Hey, Lily. Hey. What you got for us today? Did you know that the largest beaver dam on Earth was discovered via satellite imagery in 2007? I did not know that. And since then, only one person has trekked into the Canadian wild to see it. The dam is located in Alberta in Wood Buffalo National Park. It measures about half a mile long and in the shape of an arc made of connected arcs, like a, you know, recurved bow. The officials who run the park have only heard about the world's largest beaver dam and seen it in satellite photos or by flying over it in a bush plane. When they mean big, it's the, it don't mean something like the side of a, a, a hydro dam that goes up, you know, 20 stories in the air. They just mean long, right? Yeah, it's long. Yeah. worked hard for it. Yeah. It's believed that the beavers who built the dam are of original stock. So like the wood buffalo and the wolves, they were too remote to be wiped out. Well, cool. So as far as is known, only one person has ever been to the world's largest beaver dam. So in July 2014, Rob Mark of Maplewood, New Jersey... 44 years old at the time, reached the dam after a challenging journey. He took a photo of himself standing on the dam. The top of the structure was the only solid ground he has encountered for miles. But you know what's really cool is that these beavers have been the, they're the authentic, original wild beavers, right? They were never hunted to, uh, you know, endangered levels or, or eliminated altogether. They've, they've just carried on with their beaver life for many thousands of years. Yeah, and it's really strange to think, but many of the beavers that have reestablished themselves globally are descended from beavers that were planted by wildlife biologists. Huh. So the thriving beaver population in Argentina, from Canada's Saskatchewan River, who are themselves scions of beaver transplanted from upstate New York. Oh, wow. Well, their beavers are getting around from uh, Saskatchewan to Argentina. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife, CD FW said in December 2023 that it had relocated a family of seven beavers within the wilds of central Sierra Nevada. Can you imagine you're a beaver in Canada and you get to get to go to live in California? <laughs> Lucky beavers. But why do you think they picked these beavers and why did they bring them back? It's hoped a boosted beaver population will combat the state's wildfire problem while creating habitat for other native oh. species. So beavers help retain water on the landscape, which increases groundwater recharge, improves summer base flows, extended seasonal flows, and increases fuel moisture during wildfire season, effectively creating green belts that can serve as wildfire buffers or breaks and provide refuge for wildlife. Lily, what else are beavers good for? The wetland beavers create are really critical to the survival of species that are teetering on the brinks of extinction. Mm -hmm. Beaver dams do more than restore wildlife habitat, so their ponds are havens for nearly half the rare species. They also provide people with valuable natural services such as water cleansing and stable stream flows. Okay. So Lily, are beaver numbers on the rebound then? 
Well, today, as many as 15 million beavers call North America's stream, creeks, and rivers their homes. Okay. But the population was between 100 and 200 million before European settlers came. That's a lot of beavers. So as beavers were wiped out, the majority of wetlands were drained and waterways became disconnected from their floodplains. Rivers became more like canals or sewers, leading Mm. to today's problem like water pollution erosion lily it sounds like we need beavers more than ever well the wetlands beavers create are home to diversity of species on par with tropical rainforests busy beavers restore wetlands far more quickly and efficiently than humans can and they work cheap right so today's man-made mitigation wetlands cost from ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars per acre to build yeah you know while each beaver family creates and maintains several acres of wetlands for free that's a really good deal. Lily, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on the beaver. And uh, how do we sign up for the beaver relocation to California program? You want to move to California like a beaver? I do. I do put our names on there. Lawrence and Lily Beaver. I'd love to. You'd have to eat a lot of wood though. Thanks, Lily. Abe Francis, welcome. Tell us about who you are and where you are. So hi, my name is Abraham Francis. I am Deer Clan from Akwazasne. I am currently pursuing my PhD in environmental science and engineering at Clarkson University, where I'm trying to craft a dissertation um, which I finally named Dewadadi um, Talking Water. And this, this dissertation is really interested in how you can build a long-term sustainable environmental agency in, um, in a First Nation or tribal community um, from the ground up. All of this experience and all this work sort of brought me to the river and why it's important to me and why it's important to my family. And this is where the majority of my work lives. I pursue and do things that I'm passionate about and that are about empowering my people. My family were were fisher people. I don't think that I got to see a full expanse of what their sort of fishing practice looked like in my family. I think it's important that people understand that your people are, you know, really of the water, right? You live on the shore, you know, of the St. Lawrence River, on islands along the shore, but you really, you're facing the river most of the time, from what I understand. Talk to us about that history. So Akwazasne is a place that my people have been coming for millennia, um, and primarily for hunting, for fishing, but also that we had communities here. We are in this connection place that connects us across New York State, from like the Grass River, the Salmon River, uh, the St. Regis River, the Racket River, all the way up the St. Lawrence and all the various rivers. We were like this really important location for connectivity, um, for communication. And this place was so rich in resources throughout my life. I've had to go and learn this in other places. Like this isn't taught to us. This is something that we have to go seek out and find this information and read about and learn this. It's not something that's like sort of made available to us in history classes. Like we're proud of being Mohawks, but understanding the ways that Akwazasne as a community has impacted the world, I think is really valuable to the conversations, but also how we've been impacted by like different historical moments. The violence we've experienced has impacted us. But I also make sure to tell that story in line with 
um, the stories of resistance that exist here, because we've never been these passive recipients of decisions made around us. We've always resisted and stood up and made our voice heard and and changed. And I think that's part of what has made Akwesasne one of the like sort of leading communities amongst tribal and First Nation communities, that what we do here um, has these rippling impacts. That part of your history is probably the only part I would ever learn growing up in uh, public schools in Ontario is the, you know, the French-English battles, right? The uh, the English-U.S. Uh, battles over land, over forts, over trading rights, you know, and, and how they always tried to incorporate and um, manipulate Indigenous communities to fight on their sides, right? And that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it's... Uh, relatively recent compared to your, like I said, many millennia on the river, but it, it definitely clouds it all. And, you know, what we read in our textbooks in public schools was really colonial focused and indigenous people just played a very minor role in terms of, you know, throwing their, their warriors on, on into one side or another. That's, that's it. That's all. And, and of course the fur trapping. Even that like sort of historical narrative denies like the power of like indigenous nations on these landscapes because mm -hmm. we form treaties with these nations and, you know, nations wouldn't form treaties with other nations if they weren't, you know, sort of afraid of the power that they had on these landscapes, right? Where we weren't just like passive recipients, we were also active participants in the political landscape that happened. In terms of fish versus game versus agriculture what's the balance there in terms of how your people survive you know when i think about aquasasna and the history that i've been learning and connecting with the fish the game and the agriculture they were all a part of how we supported each other now more more so the agricultural aspect of it and the fishing aspect of it for aquasasna um because when we were sedentarized uh through our reservations in 1700s right you know, we became restricted to this landscape because we were semi-nomadic people. We would construct a community. We'd live there for, you know, so long, maybe eight, like I think it was like 50 to 80 years. And then when sort of the land, we noticed that the land needed time to rest, we would move. But when we were sedentarized, agriculture and there was sort of this effort by colonial powers to make us agricultural people. And so we ended up like sort of removing a lot of the forests from Akwesasne. We almost completely denuded Akwesasne of all forested landscapes. And so there isn't many old growth forests here, but agriculture is part of who we are as Haudenosaunee people. We talk a lot about the three sisters, um, the corn, beans, and squash, which were these really important relatives to us. That goes way back. And then yeah. even with that, the fish are a part of that. Fish were a big protein source for us around here. And this was prior to the dam and prior to the areas of concern that happened in this area, and that sort of violence that came with that. We eat a lot of sturgeon, eel, like there were a variety of fish that we consumed. And so the one dish, one spoon agreement was this agreement between multiple First Nation communities in this area. That was a part of our respect and our responsibility to each other to not over harvest, to share what we catch some of the capitalistic economics of these things started to show up more around the beaver trade. These areas of concern, you know, up and down the St. Lawrence River and throughout the Great Lakes, I think there's 32 of them in total. Those are real hot spots of contamination. And now yeah. we have other things like pharmaceuticals and chemicals and plastics and PFAS. Oh. 
I know we can't consume fish like we used to before all this pollution, but there's more to that relationship than just a protein source. I think it's important for us to recognize that environmental restoration has to come with cultural restoration. That like we can improve the environment, we can restore, we can stop the sources of pollution, blah, blah, blah. We can research. But like a big part of it is like when we've been told not to consume fish since like the 1970s and all this research came out about like the impacts on our bodies. That's a huge fear. And so why would we want to go back? Like we have to start developing the research in order to and engage people to like restore that relationship um, that's been damaged. But also we have to do it in a safe way. Like, is it safe to go out and consume fish? Like we have to ask ourselves those kinds of questions because what is the PFAS content of these fish? What is the microplastic content of these fish? The main sort of things that are measured in the South are PCBs. And then in the North, it's mercury. PFAS have been shown to cause certain kinds of health impacts. It's like lead. There's almost no safe amount. Kind of like, how do we negotiate these boundaries? How do we develop like ways to reduce this harm? You know, that's the truth behind it. I got to confront grief in this process. All the loss I, has been ungrieved and still there's anger and there's reconciliation. There's recompense exactly. and restoration and all that. That's still just barely starting to happen. Exactly. And I'm like, okay, I can learn about fishing in my community. I learned about it. I spent time with people and it's like, oh my God, why don't we do this anymore? And this is why we don't do it. And this is why I don't have this part of myself. And this is why this is missing. And it's like this grief. And then it's also this overwhelming feeling of like, well, now I know this, I have to do something about it. I can't just talk about this life, right? I got to be about it. Well, how am I going to story this information? Because if we hyper-academicize this information and this work, then it loses its connection and its meaning to people. Yeah. And I think that that's a really delicate balance to walk is like, yes, it needs to be academically rigorous and, you know, it's got to be out there and challenging and all of this wonderful stuff. But at the same time, it has to be able to connect with the communities that it impacts. That's my responsibility yeah. to share this information, to story it, to get it out to the people and think about how it's impacting them. I see this like really con- important connection with fish advisories. And there's a lot of science that goes into the risk assessment. We looked at fish consumption through that IJC study through these four different directions, which were from the population level, which were from the contaminant level or the risk level, um, the nutritional benefit, and then also from the biocultural element. And looking at all those dimensions and course with each other to understand like, you know, how healthy that fish is to consume or how healthy it is for us to be in relationship with it. Why we don't consume fish from around where we are. Is there is there such a deep fear of the pollution? Is there sort of this distance we've created with the water and the environment that it's dirty, you know? Yeah. And that like you shouldn't eat anything out of it and yet 40 million people are taking their drinking waters out of the great lakes right people don't know where their where their fish comes people don't know where their water comes from it's just sort of like this idea that like it's out there you know yeah yeah Yeah. it comes out of the tap and then they don't even drink the tap water anymore they buy you know water in bottles and it's dirtier than the tap my microplastic let me go get my servant a microplastic you know (laughs) Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tell my kids, you know, the water that comes out of the tap in Toronto, that's the some of the best tasting tap water you'll taste in the world. And it's they've done tests and it's cleaner than most bottled water. Mm-hmm. 
definitely these fears, you know, we need to get science involved. We need to get people involved and start to understand exactly what we're dealing with, right? You guys got a big mountain to climb there for sure, as do we all. Hopefully I have a lifetime of this kind of work and supporting this effort here in Akwazasne. You know, like this works hard and it takes time and I'm not exactly a very patient person. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, it can be like very anxiety building, but, you know, I think that I just keep moving. I keep trying and I'm so grateful to have the support of my community, my family and my friends to keep doing these kinds of things. I do nothing by myself. And I constantly say that, like, I'm so grateful to the people that have supported me, have given me opportunity and like keep bringing me into conversations like we're having right now, you know, where I have an opportunity to share about what we've done around this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah they're lucky to have you. Someone who's just devoting themselves with such a passion and, and such an academic vigor and a dedication to, to citizen science and local knowledge and history. You're doing all the disciplines, my friend. Like when you look at the university, you know, program list of courses to take, you must be overwhelmed. Are you want to take it all? most definitely most definitely and then i cry at the end of the semester when it's exam time and i'm just like why did i do this (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah you're like finger in every pie but you know you got no choice you got no No, choice i'm i'm gonna keep doing this and i'm gonna keep fighting you know because like i've been provided i've you know so many people have fought so hard to open the doors that I have the opportunity to walk through and sit at tables that I never thought in a million years I would be sitting at and providing my advice and people would be listening to me, you know? And, and I think about a lot about that responsibility, keep becoming a better and better person at what I do. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this, the fact that I am able to do what I do, there wasn't a high chance that I would be this person, you know? I had a more likely chance of ending up in jail or struggling with addiction or dead, you know, than I did doing what I'm doing. Mm. And I think there's an institutional problem about that because I shouldn't be the exception in a lot of respects, you know, and it shouldn't have been so hard for me to arrive at this place in my life. So I think a lot about that piece of this. Yeah. Yep. You got a lot of souls to carry on your back, my friend. Keep up the great spirits and the, and, and your openness to all of this and, and, and the fight and the fight for sure. Hey, it's been so great talking with you again, Abe, and looking forward to seeing that report when you, when it comes out, but no rush. You make sure it's exactly the way you want it to get. And when you, when you think you're getting close, then it's time. Okay. Yeah, it'll be very soon. It's going to be my Christmas gift to the people that I've had the chance to work with. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Lawrence. I really appreciated this conversation today. Staying warm on ice can be tricky because you're not moving around a lot. You're not being super active. It's not like tobogganing where you're climbing hills and coming back down or skiing or snowshoeing or cross-country skiing. There's a lot of activity And then there's a lot of holding still. When you're just ice fishing, you're really sitting around your hole in the ice and focusing on trying to catch a fish. The only thing moving is your arm as you're moving your fishing rod. So you got to dress accordingly. You have to dress for high activity times and for low activity times. This means layers. 
the first thing you want to put near your skin is something that wicks moisture away from your skin. A polyester type long sleeve t-shirt is really good for that. You don't want to be wearing cotton. Cotton absorbs moisture and then holds on to it. What you want to do is have that moisture pass right through that first layer that's touching your skin and out to the next layer so that layer of fabric next to your skin feels dry all the time. Then I like to put on a layer of thin merino wool long sleeve. That way I've got a base layer and a warm layer. On top of that, I'm gonna put on a full on wool sweater. And then on top of that, I'm gonna put on a coat, a windbreaker type coat with many pockets. Why so many layers? Well, why not just have a super warm coat? It's because when I'm active, when I arrive on the ice and I'm shoveling snow and setting up the ice hut and drilling holes, I'm taking my coat off. I'm just wearing my sweater. And that way, any moisture that's wicking off my body passes through all these layers and the cold, super dry winter air just sucks it off my body and takes it away. And then when I'm ready to fish, I put my coat back on. And then I'm gonna be warm because I have the coat that blocks the wind, it becomes my shelter. Inside another shelter, like a wood nice fishing shack or a flip over type tent or a pop-up hub style tent, I may not put the coat back on. Now on the bottom half of my body, I'm always a big fan of bib pants. You know, with the bibs that have the straps that come over your shoulder, they have the fabric on your back and your chest, so you get a little more protection to keep your core warm. Keeping your core warm is super important. You know, when you're sitting and you're bending over and you're active, you don't want the wind going up your back. And if you're just wearing regular type ski pants and you're sitting, you can have your lower back exposed. And if that gets cold, well, you're gonna feel not great. For my feet, again, I'm wearing a wicking layer pair of uh, merino wool socks initially or some polyester socks thin though so that my moisture from my feet will wick away from my feet then some merino wool or wool socks on top of that and then some really good boots that are waterproof and warm with some insulation now getting a pair of boots that fit well is super important you want to make sure the ends of your toes are touching the ends of the boot so if if there's a big air gap between your toes and the end of the boot that's going to mean your toes are going to get cold because heating up that air is almost impossible too snug though and it'll cut the circulation off to your feet and your feet will get cold get a good pair of boots that fit nice and snug around your foot and you'll be good to go have some good gloves i like to wear different gloves i have gloves that are fingerless that i wear for ice fishing so my fingers can touch what i'm doing touch the line touch the hook touch the fish i don't have to take my gloves off all the time i have other gloves in my pocket that i can put on on top of that if i'm outside and then i if i'm snowmobiling i'll have something thicker than that a, a neck gaiter to keep the neck warm is super important a, a nice toque finding a toque that you can keep your ears warm that doesn't block your hearing that's super important right like it's so frustrating when you put a toque on it looks really warm you put the toque on and all of a sudden your hearing is cut in half or you put a toque on and you got good hearing but the wind blows right through it so getting that sort of nice tight knitted toque just experiment with what you got in the stores and have someone talk to you while you're putting it on and you'll know exactly the one you want now the last thing i'll mention 
is you want to keep some ice picks hanging around your neck, in your upper pockets, somewhere super handy near the top of your body. These ice picks are going to save your butt. If you break through the ice, you want to have something that you can hang on to to pull yourself out. Ice is slippery, and if you're hanging just by your elbows, you're on your elbows or by your hands, you've got nothing to hold on to, nothing to pull your heavy, soaking wet body out of that hole that you just made with your body. So having a pair of picks in your hands that you can pull out of your upper pockets, jam into the ice with your hands, and then use it to lever yourself out, to pull yourself out of the hole is super important. If you love going down roller coasters and the feeling of swooshing left and right and up and down and speed, you'll love snowmobiling because you have many of those same sensations. It's not herky-jerky. It's not violent. It's just smooth. And trust me, when you're on a frozen lake, be on one of these highways, these snow highways made by thousands of snowmobiles that have gone before you, and you can go for 10 miles in, a, in one direction, you can easily get up to 150 kilometers an hour and you don't even notice it. I mean, the wind is deflecting off the windshield over top of your helmet. You're snug inside your full visor helmet. You're comfortable sitting on the machine and the suspension of the machine is doing its job and the aerodynamics of the machine and make sure you're not lifting off the snow. Quite an astonishing feeling. Like I said, you can get going much faster than you think you're going and you have to be a little bit careful. On the trails, it's different. On the trails, it's like a bobsled track, but these trails are all groomed. So they have heavy machines that scrape and pack and cut a sort of groove through the snow, through the forest. You know, good trails have lanes coming and going, so you don't have to worry about, you know, head-on collisions. If it is just a single lane, normally those are much more technical trails, so you're going much slower anyway. So if another snowmobile is coming towards you, you see it, slow down, move to the side, pass each other carefully, and then get going again. On the faster trails, you have these side-by-side two-lane trails, so you can go a little faster, maybe up to 100 kilometers an hour, but you don't need to go that fast through the trails. The trails, you have much more up and down and left and right, swooping corners. It's so exciting. It's so much fun to do, and even to be on the back of the snowmobile and do that. Or if you have some vision, and uh, you can do that and follow a friend through uh, through the trails. I, I used to do it at night a lot. I had a lot of peripheral vision that worked in the at night. I, I had I was missing my central vision, so I could see the headlight shadows and the way it played on the on the trail ahead of me. And I could drive my own snowmobile at night. During the day, I had very little ability to see the trail because it just everything just looked white. And that's fine on 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 the lake. You you don't you don't need to see a trail. You just drive and there's nothing in front of you just go but uh, hey i'm not encouraging you to drive a snowmobile as a blind person i'm just saying you know what i do now is if i want to have a little bit of fun i have someone sit behind me that can see well over my shoulder and if they want me to go a little bit left they they give my left shoulder a little jiggle if i want me to turn right give my right shoulder a little jiggle the more they jiggle the harder i turn and if they want me to slow down they jiggle both my shoulders and i'll slow down and the harder they jiggle the faster i'll slow down it's not like a boat snowmobiles have brakes you can stop pretty quick and you can turn pretty good but out on a on a frozen lake when there's nothing around it really gives you a sense of freedom to be actually driving something and the sound of the snowmobile and the feel of a going over the the, the, the packed down snow it gives you a sense of you know you could be going faster than you know it all depends on how bumpy the terrain is if, if if it's bumpy if it's a lot of frozen crusty snow below you you feel like you're going faster than you are if the trail's really smooth, 
you're going faster than you think you are. So keep that in mind. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions at feedback at ami.ca. Thanks to Mark Affalo. He's our technical producer. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.